I wanted to call this talk the murder of Eros today because of the darkness, perhaps, of events that are happening and uh, in Ukraine, and also because, you know, we see this happening in relationships and organizations, and, and when, when something shines very brightly, it, it gets attacked. So, so this is what I kind of would like to, to begin with, uh, Mark. Is that okay with you? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Um, thank you, Andrew. You know, and, and we can do this in one of two ways, and I'm, I'm happy to, to follow your lead. In other words, either I can talk for a little bit about the murder of Eros, then we can discuss it, or I can follow your questions and respond, which I'd be delighted to do as well. Um, I am actually experiencing, you know, some measure of jealousy at um, Anissa's hair, which is kind of awesome. So I'm, I'm kind of working with the jealousy there, but you know, but you know, that's going to distract me somewhat. But I think I'll be able to bring my 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 attention back to focus, although it won't be it won't be that easy. Mark, but... I have to say, you have a very lovely shirt today. Um, <laughs> it's very important for me to say that. Okay, now 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 we're moving here. Now we got now we got to move in here. Okay, so now we're, now we're I'm good. Okay, there we go. So so and, and just to say one word, and then you'll you'll chart our direction as you're hosting, and we're we're Andrew with delight in your living room, but just to say just, just a moment of context. In other words, in this moment of time in which we are at that place which every generation thought it was at but weren't, meaning every generation thought that its issues were actually so cataclysmic that they could actually take down reality as we know it, but that was actually never true. It was never true simply because we didn't have the technology to do it. And we're at this moment in which there's this gap between interior and exterior technologies. And as there's an explosion of interior technology in the Renaissance, and we move from pre-modern to modern, right? The great traditions collapse in, in many ways. That's a long and subtle conversation, what happened and what didn't happen. But modernity steps in with, with an explosion of evolutions of interiors, right? We get to universal human rights. We get to the emergence of the feminine. We get to, you know, the third person method. These are all evolutions of Eros, right? The third person method of gathering information, right? This all happens and slavery is abolished, right? And new forms of governance take place. And there's an uncoupling of the three great spheres, art, morals, and science. So science can kind of go in its way and art can go in its way. And and it's not conjoined or constrained or dominated by the church. So there's all these dignities of modernity. But Andrew, as we discussed last time, those dignities of modernity are based on the new story of Eros. They're based on a new story of value that da Vinci and Marcello Ficino, his cohorts, you know, tell. And to the precise extent they got that story right, so that story birthed what Habermas calls beautifully the dignities of modernity. But to the precise extent that there were important and critical fractures in the storyline, right? There were missing dimensions in the plot line, or there were missing plot lines, right? In the texture of this story, of this emergent new story, we actually crashed into the disasters of modernity that then got hyper exponentialized through exponential technologies, generating complicated 
right? Instead of complex systems, which are completely fragile and generating, right? A moment of profound existential and catastrophic risk, right? So that's the story, right? The story of modernity with all of its, its goodnesses that we described earlier, in the end, failed to actually continue after the Renaissance and after 1789, failed to continue to generate deeper interiors. So we got to separate self, we, we got to this notion of the dignity of a separate self, but we left behind deeper senses of what self really is. We left behind the fabric of the cosmos, right? We got to a reductionist materialist universe Right in which you know Steven Weinberg can legitimately say that wow the more I know about the universe the more pointless it seems, and and Weinberg's the discoverer of or at least one of the most key researchers on muons. But of course Weinberg didn't mean that when you actually read Weinberg's essay where he said that, you know he's he's making a kind of flip comment that's come you know picked up all over the place. But it actually it, it emerges from the the weirdly desiccated missing plot lines in the story of modernity. And because those plot lines are missing, because there is no story of value that goes past those early interior technologies that emerge out of the Renaissance, because interior technologies stop and exterior technologies keep moving exponentially. So we actually come to this moment where, where, where it breaks down, where, where actually our, our central story is rivalrous conflict based on win-lose metrics, rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics, the success story, which generates right, existential risk. Right? It's rivalrous conflict all the way up and all the way down in every part of the system. It's rivalrous conflict, generates tragedies of the commons, multipolar traps, races to the bottoms. And with, with export, exponential technology in play, that's actually the core generator function of the 10 major existential risks from AI reversal to climate change to gaps between haves and have-nots, et cetera. So when we're talking about cosmoronic humanism, and I want to just get the frame because without this frame, Andrew, we can't, we can't begin to move. I mean, really just between you and me, who the fuck cares if we're talking to someone who wrote a whole bunch of books and they're about cosmoronic humanism, like, let's go to sleep, right? In other words, and it's, the only thing that matters here is, is that we're actually at this moment in history that we've never been at before with, with utopia, right? right? Potentials of utopia, unlike we've ever seen for seven and a half almost 8 billion people, but at the same time, right, genuine imminent dystopia, right, of one of multiple forms, which is actually the likely course of events if we don't inhibit, right, the trajectory, the vector where it is right now, right, Me meaning, meaning we're, we're heading for an utter collapse of Eros, right, we're, we're heading for a moment, we go into a dark hole, right, and Eros as we know it in the cosmos, Right in the human world, at least, disappears. The cosmos will be fine. The human world will disappear. That's a big deal. So, so cosmoronic humanism is not, you know, quaint. Right? It's not an interesting way to pass your time. Right? Cosmoronic humanism is what we think is. Right? And let's work on this together and make it better. But it's the best version of a new story of value. Right? That actually has the capacity right, to evolve the very source code of consciousness and culture and change the vector of where we're going. So this is our Da Vinci play. And together with myself, um, my colleague, Zach Stein, who's, who's who I've studied with me for the last 10, 12 years and has, you know, emerged as a beautiful, gorgeous educational theorist, right, strongly in, in his own right. And he's kind of holding cosmotic humanism with us, you know, and with, you know, probably 30, 40, 50 other people in the central circle who are thinking and writing, we're trying to actually enact a great library, right? A great library, which is an expression 
of a new story of value. And every one of those phrases matters. It's a new story of value rooted in first values and first principles, but evolving first values and first principles, meaning a new theory of value that, that has the capacity to actually do the one thing that nothing else can do other than a new story, which has actually changed the vector of where we're going. And, and one of the very few things I agree on with my colleague from Israel, Yuval Harari, right? We disagree on pretty much everything. But the one thing I'd say we agree on is that only a new story changes the vector of history, right? And it's only a new story, a new story of value. So that's, that's our frame. And within that context, it'd be wonderful to talk about the murder of Eros because okay. otherwise we're talking about, does that make sense? Is that okay? That's beautiful. Um, and I want to, I want to like narrow down on this new story because I heard you say in our first conversation that the new story is that the universe is desire, like desire, eros, that is the universe. And that's a new story. And how is that different? How is this new story? Like, let's say we're taking what you're saying seriously is that we need a new story. We need a new narrative. We need, and that is desire. That is, that is eros. That is the universe is, you know, even, even sex, right? Because because you have said that we need to take sex seriously, and I really like that statement, and I think that's very right. important. So we have that idea, and then we have the fact that we're still doing the murder of Eros, and that right. seems to be perennial, and it seems to be happening all the time, and it seems to right. be happening in people's marriages, and it seems to be happening in Ukraine, and uh, yeah. So so I think that those those are those are the those are two things that we can see is that the story of the world is the murder of Eros. And that the, the and then and that and you're saying there's a new story we have to tell, right? And and how does that relate to desire? How does that emerge from desire? So so let me say one thing, which is that including include this that's the the it's the ultimate question. I madly appreciate it, Andrew. Um, included in desire are immediate desires and and kind of you know larger desires. You know, Buddha said have few desires but have great ones. I have a small desire right now, which I'm going to engage. I'm going to be back in about. 30 seconds, I'm gonna to go to the restroom and I'll be right back. And then, then we're gonna jump in. Okay, that's leaving us hanging. Mm -hmm. I feel like we should have some um, intermission music or something. Wow, Mark does his business. I'm going to try to get uh, called out. I was jealous of Anis getting called out. But let's see if he notices. Ooh, that is a really nice hat. Oh, there we go. Nils hat. That, that'll fill in the gap. Maybe you can do a little dance, Nils, with your hat or entertain us a little bit. All right, we'll get the we'll get the dance on the other end, but that's fantastic. That's gorgeous. Dance is good. So let, let's let's jump in. Thank you, everyone. I apologize. Let, let me jump in. It's fantastic, Andrew. So when, when we talk about desire, let's just start there, right? When we talk about desire, right, we don't talk about desire in its narrow sense. We mean desire as an expression of eros. And eros as a first principle and first value of cosmos. So now let's just take a look at this. This is fantastic. What's what is eros? So let's define eros, right? If I can't, I need to define the term, not in order to kill it, not in order to desiccate it, but to actually know and feel what it is. So eros equals this is the eros equation in cosmorotic humanism. 
And, and if anyone's up for it, you know, anyone in our gang wants to just write it in the chat box so we can see it, that'd be awesome. But Eros equals, right? Eros equals the experience of radical aliveness moving towards seeking, right? Andrew, desiring, right? Ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness. And this is to bracket for a second, Andrew, that's implied that equation all to return to Eros, but never formulated, right? Clearly as such, and in the new works of cosmorotic humanism, we spend a lot of time formulating that equation, right? And so it, it'll come out in the first piece, actually, uh, a piece that Zach and I are putting out, a 50,000 word piece on the new theory of value in the next few weeks. So that equation will be there. So it's a, it's a very important equation. So Eros equals the experience of radical aliveness, right? Moving towards seeking, desiring, ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness. So that's the desire that's at the core of reality and sexuality models Eros, doesn't exhaust Eros, right? And as you and I talked last time, there are 12 billion years of Eros before there's any sex, right? And so one of the qualities of Eros is desire. Now with permission, let me throw in another quality and then we'll have the context of our conversation on the murder of Eros. And context is everything. Because, you know, and I want to throw in another equation, but let me just say a word about context. You can't deal with any question un unless, unless you can deal with the underlying meta questions, right? And so there are meta questions, right? There are meta inquiries. And, and you know, the fifth and shelling emergent from Advaita Vedanta traditions, of course, play with those questions, you know, and the inquiry questions, you know, the who am I questions. But the way they play with it is very limited. They get from who am I, from separate self to I am awareness. But that, that doesn't get you home because I'm so much more than awareness, although I'm not less than awareness. So let's posit that actually there's three great questions. And I want to call these the three great questions of cosmorotic humanism, without which we can't talk about a murder of Eros. We can't talk about anything because we don't actually have a shared understanding of where we are. So the three great questions are, who am I? One. Two, where am I? Two, and three is what do I desire or what's there to do? Right, those are the three great questions. Now, without talking about those, we can't even begin to move. So, so let's just start with where am I, right? And so again, we're not gonna go through the whole, but just to get the, the core of it, where am I? Right, I live in a cosmorotic universe and I live in an amorous cosmos. And there's right? also a historical aspect to that, right? Please. I mean, where am I is where I am in history. Right. So, but where that's I am. What I thought history, of when you said that. Uh, in the that's beginning. right. No, that, that's great. That's great. So, where am I? The low, there's a local, there, there's a temporal answer, as you say yeah. correctly. Right. But in other words, we need a trans temporal answer because, right, because actually what Foucault and Derrida were right about is that the temporal answer yields social constructions of reality. Right. It doesn't yield, right, an essential, and it's because we're all in the same place to, to create a common language of value wherever I am in the field of history. Right, and wherever I am geographically, so both spatially and temporally, my spatial and temporal location are both rooted in a larger where, right? And that's and the larger where is right. I live in an amorous cosmos, right? Reality is driven by eros, and I'm I'm not going to now validate each one of those axioms, but but in other words, there's an enormous amount of information. That's what cosmorotic humanism and the writing we're doing now is about, which actually tells me. And by the way, I just had a fantastic little email exchange with um, David Ray Griffin, who's kind of the best Whiteheadian scholar, 
right, kind of probably alive today. And I, and I asked him to kind of confirm from certain Whiteheadian perspectives, you know, you know, the cosmorotic humanism, and he just gave us an absolutely, which is very sweet. But now to similar conclusions that we did, right, using, you know, independent methods in a different frame of reference, which is that actually all the way up and all the way down, reality is driven by eros, but eros as defined by this eros equation, right, the experience of radical aliveness, right, moving towards seeking, desiring ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness, and, and then yielding ever greater creativity, depth, and transformation. That's eros. And that I, when I live in that eros, and then I understand who am I, who am I? I'm a unique configuration of eros, yeah. right? right? I'm a unique configuration of that eros. And the eros that lives and moves in me, and the eros that lives and moves in, in David, right? And, and, in, and in Claire, right? Who's, who's someplace in the world we don't know where, right? Maybe Holland. Right, and the arrows that moves right in Shahati, and the arrows that moves in in Egil, I don't know how to pronounce that E G I L, right, right, and in Kirsten, right, the arrows that moves in all of us participates. It's a participatory cosmos in the larger field of arrows, and, and and participates uniquely. I'm an irreducibly unique expression of the field of arrows, aka I'm not just the field. The field's not just awareness. The field is arrows and desire, true self, but a much deeper vision of true self than Ramana Maharshi had, right? Who kind of limited it to awareness. No, it's actually, it's actually, it's actually eros and desire. It's Satchit Ananda, right? If you want to right borrow it from Kashmir Shaivism, right? At least something that alludes to it. But then it's irreducibly unique, right? It's irreducibly unique, right? Which Kashmir Shaivism actually danced around and avoided. Right. So I'm an irreducibly unique configuration of Eros. That's who I am. Now, what do, what do I want? What do I want? What's my desire? So my desire is, oh, I actually realized that my deepest heart's desire is actually the desire of cosmos itself. That actually cosmos desires through me, right? In other words, actually the evolutionary impulse moving in me, desiring, now back to Buddha, have few desires, but have great ones. Meaning when I clarify my deepest heart's desire, the desire of evolution is awake and alive in me. Right now, once we've got that on the table, and, and, and that's got to get on the table, we need to download that into the source code of consciousness and culture. And notice now the whole conversation changes. Right, so now we can now we can have a conversation. So now well, we have a right. Well, Mark, I am. I am. Go ahead, please. Sir. Can I just stop you there because that yeah, sounds absolutely, absolutely fantastic and beautiful and 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 aesthetic and great. But I can hear the Freudians, uh, you know, objecting, and I can hear this this kind of thing saying, "Yes, life is arrows, but life is also death and murder and destruction and and what is so going on, you know, and, and all that." So, so how do we avoid being Good. new age woo woo here? And, no, no, there's and, no, there wasn't there wasn't there wasn't a new age woo woo word in that, right? So let's go careful. Let's get Freud. Let's get Lacan. Let's get everyone on the table. That had nothing to do with new age woo woo. Not even a word, right? Because what we're talking about is. We're talking about the structure of reality. White is not new age either, right? In other words, we're talking about the structure of reality itself. We're not, there's, there was nothing Pollyannish in this claim, right? And we didn't say that Eros obviously includes, and let's go slow. Eros includes, right? Eros is love, but, but, but love of a cosmic kind, right? But love or Eros is not merely allurement, right? It's not really attraction, it's attraction and repulsion. Right, eros is, and that's why I, I love that inquiry, Andrew. Right? It's really important to put it on the table, so we don't. Right, eros is allurement and autonomy. Right, so for example, just in the personal level, right, if I'm 
madly allured to you and we fuse together, that's not Eros, right? And that's, that's fusion, right? It's actually a pathological fusion. Eros is the dialectical play Good. between the vector of my autonomy, right? Which is repulsion from you. I need to be separate from you. I need to be individuated from you and the vector of allurement. And in the precisely calibrated dialectical dance between allurement and autonomy, or in more scientific terms, attraction and repulsion lives Eros, right? And that's precisely how Eros works. And any, any movement, right? Too strongly towards autonomy or too strongly towards allurement results in either fusion on the allurement side, right? And of course, dissociation, right? Alienation, right? Conflict, right? Destruction, right? On the, on the autonomy or the repulsion side. So that's one. Now, mm -hmm. two is when we talk about, you know, and again, you know, there's, there's different moments in Freud. And let's be careful with Freud because, you know, there's, there's many, as you know, Freud was a great writer, right? And that's one of the, the great gifts he had. He was actually a very, very good writer. And there's many layers of Freud and there's, there's, there's more clarified Freud. So there's places that Freud talks about Eros where he, he's kind of reaching for a second for something that we're talking about. And then he kind of falls back into the, the materialism of his day, which he felt was absolutely necessary to operate within those constraints, right? In order to actually get, you know, psychology to be accepted as, you know, a clear discipline, which was kind of the almost neurotic, if you will, Jewish passion of his life. And he even wanted Jung you know, involved to actually help him accomplish that independently of all the places he disagreed with Jung. But but bracket all that for a second. There's no question that there's attraction, repulsion, allurement, and autonomy. And there's also no question, let's bring death, because you put you put another really important word there, which is death. Yeah. And death is really important. So let's let's stop for a second and talk about death because we want, we want to talk about murder. So let's talk about death. Okay. With, with permission, I just yeah, I want to go dark tonight a little bit, Mark. Let's go dark. Andrew wants to go dark. Okay. But before we're going to go dark with Andrew, we're going dark. But let can we talk about death for a second with your permission, brother? Because we need to absolutely some words on the table. And what we do is we move so fast in dialogues, we can't create a ground. So let's create a ground. Let's get some death and before we go dark. Okay. So let's talk about death. So there are three ways to approach death and. And I have, you know, uh, you know, uh, there's a phrase in Hebrew, my sins, I mentioned this day. So one of my, my sins is I have not completed the book on death. It's 99.8% complete. And I've got, you know, two more weeks on heat to finish it. But, but here's the basic, the basics. And it's really, really, really important because you, you can't think about Eros without engaging death, right? To bypass death and your, I, your question is so, I mean, more than spot on. I mean, it's the only thing that, that needs to be said because the conversation is not real without it, right? Without without death at the table, without the skull grinning at the banquet, we can't even begin to approach Eros. But actually, there are three ways we approach death, right? One, right? And you guys, I'm, I'm saving everyone the trouble of reading the book when it comes out, but, but, but it's really, really... And I, I sat to write at the beginning of the pandemic because death was grinning at the banquet and the conversation about death was non-existent or, or bordering on the ridiculous. So there's three ways to approach death. One is through philosophical examination of materialism and dualism and seeing if there's a third possibility, right? You know, so that's one, right? In other words, is, is the world material? Is the world dualistic? Meaning the bottom of, you know, the world itself is all, right, material, but there's this other force called spirit. These are two separate realms and they interact with each other. Uh, can we, can we, can I just stop you there for a sec? Because because this seems to be important in terms of your new story. It's very important. The dualism is like John Verveke calls it two world mythologies. Right. The, the dualism. 
The and he said that the axial age, there was this two world mythologies. You know, there's this incredible dualism and, and you know, you're living for heaven, you're living for another place. And right. I think we're, we have to move beyond that somehow yeah, no, and no, move that, into that, process and, and all that. So I'm sorry, I'm jumping. That, no, 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 that's you, great. But I want to bring that into this. No, that, no that's, that's fantastic. I don't know. I don't know, John. We have some mutual friends and I, well, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll meet. There's been talk of meeting, you know, recently, but, um, but I, I don't know John or I'm, I've actually never read or heard him, but, but he is correct that there were two worlds. The two worlds were rooted in dualism, right? And dualism did indeed suggest, as you say, in the 17th century, right, that actually there are two distinct worlds, and actually 19th century materialism is essentially just hop, lopping off the head of 17th century dualism. That's essentially what 19th century, right? Now, what's absolutely correct is there's a third possibility, and I call that possibility pan-interiority, right? And pan-interiority actually means, right, pan-interiority means that actually there's no ultimate split between interiors and exteriors, and interiors and exteriors are interincluded or interdigitated all the way up and all the way down. But stay close for a second. That's one piece of the conversation around depth. Meaning, if you actually look at materialism and dualism, you see that they're both, and I'm not going to spend the time now, but there are three major critiques of materialism, right? Um, you know, which are devastating. And the critiques of dualism are interesting, but, but not as devastating as that of materialism, but still important. And we actually need a third possibility which we're calling in cosmogonic humanism pan-interiority. White had called it pan-experientialism. Right? They're not the same thing, but it's the, it's, it, they overlap, right? That sense of pan-psychism, right? Non-dual monism, there's a lot of names for it, but basically this notion that there's interiors and exteriors all the way up and all the way down. So, so let's take that for a second, because it gets a billion times more exciting than that, as a philosophical given, and in David, you know, a bunch of people have written about this. We've done some good work on this, but let's take that as a given that the best philosophical possibility using rigorous philosophical thinking is actually a kind of pan-interiority, okay? But it gets even more interesting than that because eh, number two, number two is, right? And here's, this, this is where it gets crazy exciting. Anthro-ontologically, which is key to the new story, how we gather new knowledge. Anthro-ontologically, meaning anthro, you know, person, ontological for realsies. So anthroontologically, there's what Zach and I call the anthroontological method, meaning I know what's true by going deep inside, right? The mysteries are within and I can clarify the depth of my interiority and I can create universal principles from it. How that works, let's bracket for a second. But anthroontologically, I actually know that death is not real, right? And as I actually have an embodied first point, and in other words, skip all the philosophy, skip the critiques of materialism, dualism, skip you know, Goffney's pan-interiority or Whitehead's pan-experientialism, skip the fact, let, let's take that as a given, that's track one. But track two is, without all that, anthroontologically, there are 12 different doors. I'm just gonna give two examples, which tell you in your own first-person experience, right, that death is a night between two days. Now, the death is not the end of the story. You actually have a direct experience of it. And uh, let me just give, just for, for sake of time, just one example. Right. The one example I would use would be right. One of the first principles and first values of cosmos is fairness, and it's related to the murder of Eros as well. But fairness, right? We need the world to be fair, but that's not a temporal. That's not a particular right historical notion. It's not a, a geographical notion, right? The need for fairness is both in neuroscience. I was having a conversation with Jordan, 
Jordan Hall on Saturday, where I was sharing this with him, and he, he, he cited some very important neuroscience which supported it. We know neuroscientifically, we know in terms of developmental studies that, that Zach's done some really important work on, that fairness is an innate structure for every human being, right? But you just need to have kids. I have four kids. I don't know if you have kids, Andrew. I have four yeah. kids, right? So one kid says to the other and says, you know, in Hebrew, this is a little fair. It's not fair. And when your kid tells you it's not fair, they're appealing to an intrinsic ontological universal that you must respond to or you will crush them, right? right? It has to be fair. So the need for fairness is an intrinsic first value and first principle of cosmos. Now, all of us on this call know that within the context of one lifetime, life does not necessarily work out fairly. It just fucking doesn't, right, right? And so now let's just watch this for a second. So if I know that intrinsically fairness is a core first principle and first value of cosmos validated across time and across space, A. Mark, B, are you I saying that it's that, all going to be okay? I, I interrupted you again. I, I'm, say, I'm saying that within the context of one lifetime, it's not going to all be okay. Right. Right. And other than one of the things and I, I you know, one of the, the huge mistakes that I think is being made, including, by the way, as with mad respect, love and honor in your circles, is this notion that death's the end of the story. And actually, anthrop not only philosophically, do we know that's not true? Anthropologically, we know that's not true. By the way, I, that's not my personal view. It's definitely I, I didn't think I didn't think it was in, it, it, in my in my circles. I, I have I have. I've been given what we, I have a multi-lifetime view because I'm a Vajrayana yes. Buddhist. Yeah, well, amen to Vajrayana Buddhism, right? And anthroontologically, I know it's true within my body because I actually know that reality must be fair. And this is a pointing out instruction. And I know that fairness is not accomplished within the cycle of one lifetime. So therefore, I anthroontologically know that, that actually it's not over when it's over, right? Because fairness can't be accomplished within that narrow frame. So that's, that's an example. There's so 12, 12 still we die though, right? We, we, we still die. I mean, we die, we absolutely die, but, but, but death is, a, death is a night between two days. Death is a transition. You actually have to get it in. And that doesn't mean we don't, we protest death. We protest evil. We're activists in every sense, shape or form. We challenge the divine. We do all of that. And we actually have to have an anthropological realization right, that death is not the end of the story, that death is a portal. And that's actually a knowing, right, you know, when James talks about radical empiricism, but he's talking about the realization, right, that actually, you actually have to have an embodied realization ethically and erotically, that that's not the end of the story. And last thing in three, so this is three, which is, we also know based on an enormous amount of parapsychological information, starting with the British Psychical Society and moving to James's version of it in the United States, Norms of empirical information, right, across vectors of parapsychology, which has been extremely well validated, right, at least a very strong vector of information that that's not the end of the story. So what do we just see here? And this has never been, it's surprising, Andrew, we just put three things together that have never been co-joined. One, philosophical information, materialism, dualism, pan-interiority. Two, anthro-ontological information. Three, radical empirical information. Right, we just—that's th a big deal. What we just did, so we just—we just said, okay, through through those three vectors that have never been co-joined, we actually now realize, right, that death, right, is part of the larger flow of the currency of eros, 
and doesn't in a narrow Freudian materialist perspective stand against it. And that's very, very important. So there's not one fucking word here of new age or woo-woo, which, which we reject, right? In toto, anything which is, is not validated in radical empiricism, but radical empiricism, right, means I'm doing deep empirical work, right? I'm using in the interior sciences, you know, I'm using what I call the eye of value, the eye of the heart, right? The eye of the senses and the eye of the mind. I'm using all of those to create radical empiricism. So Eros is a grounded structure of the interior sciences, which places desire, but AKA my deepest heart's desire, right? At the very center of cosmos, right? And that, that's, that's exciting. And so sexuality, sexuality, right, right, is radically exciting because it's a portal, right, to the embodied first-person experience of the pulse and throb of desire, right, that lives at the very center of the cosmos, right? And, and, and by the way, it's also one of the, the, one of the reasons in sexuality, it's so important to stay in the field of arousal and not to actually allow yourself to easily right, and cheaply release the field of arousal, right? And orgasm is not what the story is about. It's about actually entering into the field of arousal, which is, right, the structure of cosmos itself is a field of arousal. And when I can actually, as a pointing out instruction, actually feel the arousal of the cosmoerotic universe personally moving in me, and then stay in that field of arousal, and then trace it to its source, I actually explode right into the very goodness of cosmos itself. Right? So uh, there's a Wait. phrase in, in Tantra that they say passionlessness is the greatest sin. Say passionlessness? Passionlessness is the Beautiful. greatest sin, which means that moment after, let's say, when you give up on, the, on that, um, you know, when you just Lord. let that go, let, let the arrows go. Anyway, um, that, I'd no, seen, no, that moment after. That was what I was thinking about what you were saying because you seemed. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. You were there very well. You were there in the moment after, Andrew. You were in the moment after. So mm -hmm. let's, let's go to the moment, the moment after, after for a second, can we? Can we go to the moment sure, after? Sure, absolutely. Second? Yeah. So, so in the lineage of kind of certain Hebrew wisdom lineages, there's a notion that at the very moment in which sexuality is consummated, right, and it's now complete, right? In that moment, there, there, there's an energy that enters, which is called tum'ah, which is called impurity. But the impurity is not impurity because of sexuality. It's mm -hmm. because of there's an instant in which there's a cessation of desire. Yeah, and, and same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, gorgeous, right? right? I mean, it's gorgeous. The cessation of desire, right, is the ultimate sin, right? And that's stunning. This so is now, the opposite of how we think of religion in the world. That's correct. That's correct. So, right. That's correct. Right. In other words, and, and, and now, but, but now, right. And notice just how far we've come in this short time. So now we're talking about desire as the throb of cosmos that lives in me, but, but we also naturally understand that we need to distinguish between pseudo desire or pseudo eros and authentic eros, right? In other words, my eros has to be, right an expression, an irreducibly unique expression of the eros of cosmos, right, living, right, in me, as me, and through me. And here's a funny thing. I'm going to say something which is strange, right, at first blush, but, but will make sense in a second. You know, one of the things we're talking about at the center is the need to, to actually articulate a world religion, 
It's a different conversation, which we'll talk about. Maybe we'll get to some of it on Sunday, maybe not. But by a world religion, we don't mean a totalizing religion. We mean a world religion as a context for our diversity. And we're actually about to change the name of the center to the Center for World Philosophy and Religion, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. But now let's just stay with it for a second, right? When I actually feel into, you know, what a, you know, what a world philosophy needs to articulate, right, in terms of, you know, desire, right, we need to introduce, right, and reclaim at least three structures of cosmos we've thrown away. Two of them I'm not going to talk about now, but the third I want to just talk about for a second. One's God. The second's prayer. And now the God you don't believe in doesn't exist, and prayer is not a cosmic vending machine. So we need evolved notions, right, right, of both, 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 both God and prayer. But Absolutely. Bracket that, bracket that for a second. Let's go to the third. The third one is sin. Mm, absolutely. Actually, Great. Yes. Right? Yes. Mm. We, need, we need to reclaim sin, right? Just missing and, the mark, but... Right. And sin in Hebrew, right? And you're quoting the, the English adoption of, of your beautifully so, thank you, Andrew, of the Hebrew word chet, C-H-E-T, but chet, tet, aleph. And chet is, is an archery term, which is la which literally means, as you say so beautifully, to miss the mark. So if there's no sin, then there's no mark. Right. In other words, in other words, in other words, if there's no bullseye and if there's no mark, well, then there's no sin. Are and you saying we should sin um, a lot, Mark? No, 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 no. What we're saying is that <laughs> sin, right? And we're going to get to that part. Andrew, I know you want to get there. We'll get there. Right? But, but first we got to- Because we have to sin me so we can repent. Otherwise, there's right? no and, religion. And, and, Andrew, right? get, get me to that sin, right? Why, right? But <laughs> Yeah, I was actually, waiting for the sin. Yeah, please. But, but, but actually, yeah. do you remember there was an, a man named Thomas Carlyle um, who lives not far from Matthew Arnold. Matthew Arnold writes a book called Culture and Anarchy. And he has a throwaway sentence there. And I remember reading it when I was 17 or 18, where he says, quotes Carlyle as saying, and I remember reading the sentence, it went right through my you know, little 17-year-old body. He says, Socrates is terribly at ease in Zion, right? And what he meant was, what he meant was Socrates is terribly at ease in Zion. What he meant was, right, we've lost our sense of sin. And sin means there's a place I need to be there's people I need to be with. There's things I need to do. I need to clarify my desire. I need to identify my deepest heart's desire, not just by what I need in terms of my kind of new age sense of self. No, no, not at all, right? What does reality need from me in the next moment will always be congruent with my deepest heart's desire. And I remember I did a, 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 a podcast where just just barely starting to kind of step out of our, our internal conversation in the center, beginning to have a little bit conversations. I did a podcast with this lovely man from Austin. And he asked me, he said, Mark, you know, I'm, you know I've, I've accomplished a lot and I've got a lot of money and a lot of power. And, you know, I feel a little terrified at my decisions. And how can I not be terrified? So I said to him, I said, you know, whatever his name is, a beautiful man. I said, you should be terrified. <laughs> I said, Don't ask me not to be terrified, right? And it's, it's, it's terrifying. Right there, there, right now, there's a mark. Now, after you're terrified, holy terror is the word that comes to mind. Like there's some right, right, right. Be, right. be terrified. Right, you should be terrified. Right, right, right. We're, we 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 go too easy not being right now. After being terrified, I want to step into joy. And maybe my favorite verse in the in the sacred text is Gilu bira ada, tremble with joy. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and if you want to feel what sexuality is, how that one of the ways that the sexual models eros. In sexuality, we tremble with joy. 
right? The shudder of the sexual, right? Trembles, right? With the joy of cosmos, right? And the goodness of fuck, right? The goodness of Eros, right? Is contained, right? Yeah. In the full delight of that tremble. You said fuck there. I heard you say the word fuck. You must, there must be something wrong with your, uh, your sound. I didn't, I didn't hear that. Did anyone else hear that? I didn't hear that. Did must be a mistake. You said the, the tremble of fuck or something like that, right? And also in your last song, you said the love and fuck of cosmos. So so why are you why are you using this word? Okay, so that's a great question. That's a good that, I mean that's a fucking awesome question, right? Actually. Fucking right. Right, right. Right. And if you think about it for a second, right? I mean, here, here's a word on it, okay? Right. I I and if, if we could we could we, we, we could do a separate dialogue on this. I I, I wrote a uh, 20,000 word essay, right, called on the word fuck. Right, um, because it's an, the word "fuck" is kind of like the word "God," right? And as it comes out as a curse word, right? We use it as a curse word, right? But it also, right, evokes right the intensification of experience, right? And actually, right, it's its deepest possible value. So let me just get, give me just a minute on that, just to, to because it's such a good question, just to respond to it. So so the word "fuck" functions in culture like the word "God" used to, and the word "fuck" is actually before sex. As before we even talk about sex, there's there's the word fuck. So fuck always means an intensification of experience, but it happens in one of two ways. It's either a positive intensification, right? So fuck is a positive intensification of experience. That's fucking awesome. Or holy fuck. That's fucking beautiful, right? Yeah. Or or holy fuck, right? Meaning it's an intensification of the sacred, right? Right? You know, but it's always an intensification. So for example, on either side, a fucking asshole is a much bigger asshole than an ordinary asshole, yeah. right? And that's right. And that's right. So, so fucking intensifies experience, right? Both negatively and positively. So it can be an intensification of the awesome, or fuck can be right a a dissection of experience. I'm gonna fuck you up, right? Right. In other words, which means I'm gonna actually create alienation. It's the intensification of alienation. So fuck is the intensification of experience, either towards its greatness, its beauty, its depth, its holy, holy fuck, right? Or towards the breakdown, right? It, it, right? I fucked up my marriage. I fucked up my job, right? It's the breakdown. It's alienation. Both of those meanings are prior to the sexual meaning, right? Then, then the sexual meaning plays with that as well. Right? And the sexual meaning captures right, both the eros and thanatos, that live within the sexual, right? Both the the small death, the little death, right? Of orgasm, right? The abandonment of of small self, right? The death to small self that happens in the sexual, and in the experience of that, and the kind of surrender into that place, which is beyond the ordinary structures of power, right? And the 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 holy terror of that, and right? The utter and infinite bliss, elation, delight, right? The, the, the holy bliss fuck of cosmos, right? Exploded in me, as me, and through me. And making love, right, is a beautiful dimension of eros, and it's a sacred dimension, but love and fuck, we actually need both. We need the quivering tenderness and the fierce, the fierceness, both the fierce receiving and the, the masculine fierce. and feminine as, as well, in, in a sense? Fierce, well, well, there's, no, there's, Tenderness, right? We would, we, we, again, respect, mad love and honor, brother, right? We, we tend to make fierce masculine and tender feminine, which yeah, disrespects yeah. both of them. Yeah, right? I agree. In other words, there's actually quivering tenderness in the masculine mm -hmm. and in quivering tenderness in the feminine, 
Okay. And fierce fuck in the feminine, right? And fierce fuck in the masculine. Absolutely, someone, yeah. Someone send me, I'll give you an example. Someone send me, you know, we were, we were giving a, a series of talks actually on sexuality a bunch of years ago. It was a decade ago, right? And someone sent to me and to actually a, a well-known teacher who I won't mention their name because I don't have their permission. So they send us a video of a very well-known, you know, performer right, in the sexual arts who was receiving many men. Right? And they said, you know, what does that have to do? And of course, I, I don't track that world. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's like, what, what was that? Right. And she was incredibly fierce. She was fierce in her receiving. She was literally Kali taking the masculine in, fiercely receiving, absorbing, and literally, right, she was the powerful person, right, at the center of the story, right? So that, that's Kali. There's a fierceness right, to the feminine. And fierceness is not just about the masculine thrusting. It's the fierceness in the receiving. I receive you with all of me. I take all of you into me, right? I absorb you. I take your unique self, your essence, your heart, your body, your mind, your soul, right? All of you, I'm taking you all into me, right? And actually, right, right, a person who is in their feminine, whether man or woman, like you can't be in your woman, whether man or woman, unless you can actually fully open and let reality in the person of your beloved fuck you open to God, right? Right. That's actually the fierceness, right, of the feminine receiving, which has to be in, in the context of radical mutuality and quivering tenderness, right? In other words, in every moment of that experience, my heart needs to be radically open, and in quivering tenderness needs to dance together, right, with fierceness. And so love and fuck are actually important words. And I would perhaps say one last thing, when we bypass fuck, we create abuse, right? If you want to create, abuse, is that because we are we are separating ourselves from this fierce energy and kind of denying it, and, and and you know we go into denial and that's right, repression that's right. and and right, all right, that. And, and and that and that puritanism, and that's where it goes dark, yeah. right? You know, and it yeah. goes dark not 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 because there's two kinds of dark, because what you're referring to there's two kinds of darkness, right? There's an enormous you know, sheen of texts in the 13th century about the holy darkness, right, in the Zohar, right, which is the, the book of radiance, right? So, so there's a holy darkness, there's a sacred dark eros, and there's a broken darkness, right, right? There's a degraded darkness. So when I bypass the energy of the holy darkness, that energy then splits off from the larger field of eros, right? It devolves, Right? And then it acts out against itself and against the beloved and against the field of love itself. Right? So we actually need to be able to, to actually open up, right? to receive, to let ourselves be loved open, fucked open by, 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 by actually she, right? who, who, she, as she incarnates right? in reality and as she incarnates in our beloved. And if we split off that energy, if we alienate right, from that energy, right, then, then we actually create abuse. So bypassing fuck, right? The energy of fuck actually creates abuse. So right? I, this this is really giving me a lot of insight into, let's yeah. say, the dark side of Christianity, if I may say so, yes. um, uh, which doesn't seem to have an image of Kali. It doesn't seem to, to have a fierce feminine archetype. You need, at least on the surface, uh, it seems yeah. to, it seems to do exactly what you say. It seems to deny that. And then it becomes the, the Inquisition. It, it becomes the Borgias, right? In other words, yeah. right. In other words, and, right. And absolutely. And, and by the way, you know, if you want to get a sense of what the Borgias were and what the, you know, what, what, what the corrupt church is, you actually need to just look at the Russian Orthodox Church today, 
right? And it's a very complex moment in the Ukraine. And, and that's a broader, we, we spend like four or five weeks in our weekly One Mountain broadcast trying to do really deep sense making, right? And, and loving reality open and addressing Ukraine. That's a very big topic, right? But so we, I don't want to go down that into that right now. But, but clearly, if you want to get a sense of how a church could sell out and lose its soul, right? right you can actually just see the, tragically, because the Russian Orthodox Church is a stunningly beautiful church in its interiors. And it's now been completely hijacked, right, really tragically. But but yes, you're absolutely right. And Magdal, right, in other words, there's an attempt in Christianity to reclaim, right, to reclaim, right, the sacred energy of Eros fuck through Magdalene, right? And Magdalene's yeah. an important energy, but Magdalene, right, which is so beautiful, Magdalene is about, and, and she's connected very deeply, right, to the grail. Right, Magdalene and the Grail are part of one story. The Grail is a cup, is a goblet, right? A goblet, right? A goblet is in Hebrew a kos. A kos means yoni, kus, right? Mm -hmm. Arabic Hebrew, right? In other words, the, the the Grail, the goblet, right, is the energy of right the eros, right, of the feminine, right, who's able to fully receive right, her beloved, right, in a way that for the first time, they know their own goodness, right? I mean, it, it, it's actually, in, it, it, and this is, I mean, it, it makes me want to cry, right? And it's so important, right, right? If, if we haven't been received by the fierce feminine, whether man or woman, whatever context that is, and whatever, right, gendered expression, gender is a different conversation, that's not our conversation now, but in whatever context it is, if I haven't been received, right, by, by the full power, right, of, right, the feminine's ability to receive, but not to receive in a passive way, receiving as the, the radically dynamic feminine that takes everything into her and transmutes it, right, not with the gestation, right, of the upper goddess, which is the Ima Ilah, the higher goddess, right, which is which is the gestation of birth, but actually there's a second gestation. And the second gestation is the gestation of fuck, right? Right. When I'm fully received by the feminine, she takes me so deeply inside that she actually transmutes me, right? And then births me anew. Wow. Right? Right. And that is, and not to live in that is not to know my own goodness. It's not to know what it means to be received, right, by the divine. Right. And so. So this is this is this is unbelievably important, right? And and it's it's not only not dark, right? It, it's luminosity itself, right? But but mm -hmm. in the end, you know, in luminosity itself, you have both the darkness and the light, which actually which actually serve with one crown, right? In the language of the lineage. Okay, so let's let's breathe for a second here. Let's breathe for a second here. Yeah. Hmm. Andrew, do, do I have permission to give you a compliment? Is that okay? <laughs> of course, yeah, of course. Okay, I, 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 I'm I a whore for compliments. Right, but right. well, right. I knew you were a whore. I just know it was for compliments. But okay, there we go. I see that was just teasing you for a second there. I just want to see if you're know, awake. But, but seriously, but seriously, and and the reason I asked permission is because. We actually have to ask permission, right? Boundaries matter. And a compliment can be misconstrued as condescending. So I don't mean this in any condescending way. I mean it in, in deep wonder, right? One of the reasons that, you know, I'm enjoying my dialogue and I enjoyed the first one with you is because there's a very deep and beautiful sincerity, 
that lives in you, right? That's rare, right? It's a rare, Lionel Trillin talked about sincerity. It's a quality I don't meet often in people. It's a word that people don't even use anymore, right? Right, it's a word that's like, you know, it's sincerity. And you have just a, it's such a beautiful quality. It, it, it borders on purity. It borders on, right, and a lot of other words, but it's a sincerity. It gets is, me in a lot of trouble, Mark. I can actually imagine that it does. So I was actually, I was actually, you know, in, in the silence for whatever reason, you know, my heart found your heart and I could feel into the sincerity and I could also feel into the trouble, but but also into the enormous beauty. So just, just permission, just a deep bow and honor to you, sir. Yay. Thank you. Yay. Okay. Okay. So we have a topic, the murder of Eros. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to go back to that. And, and um, uh, so again, we've, we've talked about sort of the sublime and we've talked about the darkness and when the darkness is in the right place, perhaps, um, and, uh, and the dark luminosity. Uh, and then, and then, um, you know, the Leonard Cohen song came to mind. Um, you want it darker, you want it darker. And, and 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 being a witness uh to that um yeah yeah you know, yeah. You know i notice it in, in in the world but i also notice it just in in relationships with people and so um how does so, that happen what is the dynamic of that what is the dynamic of the murder murder of, of eros and, and, and how do we hold that let, let's step into the murder of eros and you know there's there's something about a a public dialogue which um which reveals certain, you know, intimate details, which you might not necessarily want revealed. And one of them is that after I've drunk tea, it has a relatively immediate impact on me. So I'm going to take another 30 second break and then we're going to go into the Holy murder. Cow. <laughs> okay. So does anybody have some nice um, clothes they want to show the, the audience some, or a little dance or, or um, something for the intermission? Or should we, should we just stay with the, um, with the um, the words that have been spoken and allow them to penetrate us. Penetrate us. I heard that. That's the right word. That. Is that the right word? Yeah, penetrate us. Okay. Does anybody want to penetrate us with their, some kind of expression? Actually, your pee breaks are pretty good. They're 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 good for the the rhythm of this this conversation, Mark. Um, I don't know if you're doing that on purpose or if it's part of the theatrical uh, theatrics of, of Mark Gaffney, but they work they work out okay. Simple simple biology, my friend. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but but it's often happened in my life that simple biology has been attributed and projected as theatrics. So that's okay. I'm used to it. So, right, so so let's step in here, right to the uh, to the murder of Eros, right right as it were, which is a good a good segue. And it, it, it's very 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 important to understand that the murder of Eros is a very real structure. And I, I actually would, would invite anyone, you know, if you'd like to, there's a, uh, an essay that I don't know if we send around to everyone or not, but we will afterwards, um, called The Murder of Eros, which actually is at the end, as you mentioned, thank you, Andrew. 
at the end of the of the um, Return to Eros book. And I, I just want to invite everyone, and we'll when we send it to our list and when you send it to yours, let's we'll, we'll send everyone a link to Return to Eros, and perhaps also to an article, a review of Return to Eros that Zach Stein wrote called The Metaphysics of a Return to Eros, which is a very, very, you know, excellent and kind of you know, complex review of the book. And 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 I apologize insincerely, you know, for the next sentence, right? It's actually the best book on Eros we have today. Right. And it, it's an important book. And I say that just because it's important. We need Eros. And at the end, we talk about there's two essays called The Murder of Eros and The Pain of Eros, right? Which are both, you know, you know, unbelievably important. And, and I say important, I mean important to avoid suffering and important to avoid existential risk, right? In other words, you know, it's cosmorotic humanism is a response, right, to to dystopia. Right. And, and so so I, I just want to always hear, you know, I want to just feel you know, the urgency of it, you know, together with the laughter, right? And, you know, we laugh out of one side of our mouths and we, we cry out of the other side and we, we feel the, the, the urgency and yet the urgency is an ecstatic urgency, right? And so, so there could be no more serious conversation than one we're having today, right? With no, no more gravitas, right? It was just enormous gravitas, right? And, and, and we're laughing, we're laughing not because it's funny in a kind of deconstructive way, we're laughing because only laughter holds the paradox of the whole thing, right? And so, so we're holding that laughter. So, you know, I would just invite anyone and hopefully we'll send it in the mailing to actually to take a look at this essay, um, The Murder of Eros, because it, it, it gives a critical framework both to understand our own lives, right? To understand, as you said, Andrew, the, the real politic, Right of the day and of, of any of any moment, right? And there's no question that part of what's happening, many things are happening in, in the Ukraine today. And there's 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 there, it, it, there's multi layers of of understanding that are all necessary to understand what's happening in Ukraine and to engage the Ukraine, right? And you know whether Ukraine should have happened or not is a very big question. I don't think we needed to get here, and I think the West has some culpability in the fact that we got here. We could have avoided it, but once it happened. Right. Once it was in play, right, there's no question that you have to stand with Ukraine for 10 or 15 different reasons. So just glory to Ukraine and glory to the heroes, right? And anything we can do now to help and support Ukraine right, on every possible level is, is absolutely necessary, right? So without going down and having that conversation, now let me just say one piece to just affirm what you said earlier, Andrew, as a way in, but there's a dimension, right, of the obsession with Ukraine now that it's broken out for Putin, which is about the murder of Eros. There's no question about that. And that Ukraine is standing for a certain dimension and a certain quality of Eros, a certain quality of freedom, right, in this moment. But but let's 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 step into the, the kind of broader issue, which is we can't understand society and we can't understand the structures of politics without understanding the murder of Eros. And the murder of Eros very simply means, right, and, and let's say it's now you know, 308. So let's maybe take, we can, we can do, you know, I want to honor everyone's timeframes. We can do 20 minutes on this and really kind of find this will, will be great. Yeah. And maybe uh, if you have time, Mark, then we could have some questions at about totally half, totally, half past, totally, uh, totally, totally, uh, totally. nine here. Yeah. Totally. So, so the murder of Eros is the murder of life force, right? It's the murder of Christ, right? But by Christ, I don't mean, right. Jesus, the Christ, I mean, Christ has life force and we move to murder life force. And that's incredibly important to understand. And this, the, 
the the move to murder life force is as you know primal right as civilization itself right cain moves to murder abel and abel is is the one who is resonant with the cosmos right he's in the the flow of eros in the cosmos his sacrifice his offering or korban in hebrew which means his intimate offering korban means intimacy his intimate offering right is received by cosmos and that infuriates cain and we have the first murder can I just jump in here for two seconds? Please, please. In our in our group, we've talked a lot about Rennie Girard and the scapegoat, right? Uh, um, and and that is, for me, that's the best analysis I, I've I've found, at least of, of giving me insight into to why these kind of things happen. Um, I, I wonder if you you've if if that is yeah. part of part of the equation for you. Um, I, I think Girard, he got some of it. He didn't get a lot of it as well. Right, but um, why don't, why don't you just 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 for everybody that people are not familiar, why don't you do a do a do a ninety second recapitulation of Gerard? Well, there's something about the beginning of civilization that begins with the, our search for a scapegoat. When the tension between, uh, let's say, uh, tribes gets gets too too intense, uh, what we do is we build a scapegoat, and then we 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 sacrifice the, we we choose an arbitrary innocent victim. We sacrifice that victim uh, in order to relieve the tension. Um, and but right. uh, you know the warring right. tensions between Gerard what? calls it substitution. Substitution, right? We find a substitute victim, and and so this is how we keep the lie of society, as Gerard puts it, going by always looking looking for a scapegoat. And we can look at ourselves at all the time, and how when when someone attacks attacks right. us, we we often we often put that on somebody else, or right. um, so. But Gerard, so Ukraine is the scapegoat because Ukraine is not. The, the you know is not the actual uh, the conflict is actually between worldviews perhaps of the West and 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 you know neo traditionalism of the East and then there's the, and so the, so they choose Ukraine as as the the scapegoat and most of the people are in, in, in the society is is has is innocent right. in the sense but that's great that first of that's a great recapitulation right and and this is his notion of substitution and I think he got it and I'll just say one word on it I think he got it exactly half right and half wrong. Right. And as he, what he got half right is that there is a structure of scapegoating. Right. Yeah. And but what he got wrong is, right, is that the scapegoats, not as you put it correctly, expressing Gerard, the scapegoats, not arbitrary. Right. Right. In other words, and as Gerard makes the scapegoat, as you correctly summarized him, you know, relatively. Well, arbitrary. the innocent victim, right. the arbitrary right. innocent victim. Right. 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 But it, it's actually much more, much more subtle. And as the murder of Eros, right, is in a certain sense, my response to Gerard. Right. In other words, and it's offering a different view, which which takes him into account, but I think more accurately describes reality. And we can actually feel that, you know, in, in our own being anthropologically, because our the murder of Eros is connected to malice. Right. And malice is the exact opposite of love, or it's the opposite of Eros. Malice means malice means, and it's a word that we kind of the new age denies, that it pretends that malice doesn't exist. Right, which is why often, right, the New Age movements themselves, right, actually, just like the Catholic Church did, right, the sheen of the Catholic Church hid the Borgias, right. There's quite a few Borgias, right, running throughout the New Age and human potential movement that are hidden under the sheen of kind of appropriate language and, you know, and and Pollyannish, you know, kind of, you know, vernacular formulations, right, because the New Age actually splits malice off. And therefore, it goes into darkness, then it re-expresses itself in many of the machinations of that world. But the murder of Eros means, right, I feel malice towards you. I want to kill you. And I want to kill you because your very 
existence bothers me, right? Your vitality, your energy, right? Your innocence, your sincerity, right? Your purity, right? Your love, your outrageous love, your capacity, right? All of those, right, remind me, right? As Willem Reich said in his little book called Listen, Little Man, yeah, right? Remind me that I'm, I'm a little man, right? That somehow, right? And Reich also gets a piece of it, right? Doesn't get the whole, but he gets a piece of it. He gets a piece of this listen, little man, right? The experience of the murder of Eros is someone or something is standing for a more beautiful world than we imagine possible, right? And is embodying that, right? And it might be an institution, it might be a person. I'm not just give you, I was gonna, I'll start with an institution as an example before we go to persons. I was walking with John Mackey through the, um, the uh, uh, through a Whole Foods store, right? And John's, John's a great guy and he was chair of the center for a whole bunch of years. And there was a certain moment where Whole Foods and you know I think John's now announced his retirement from Whole Foods, but there was a whole period of time where Whole Foods was getting massively attacked. Right. And and the question was, Johnson, why? Like, and it's, we're doing so good. We're offering so much. Why? Why aren't they attacking Safeway, you know, which is the name of one chain in America or Publix or, mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank with whatever the Belgian or, you know, the chain is. And I said to John, because there's no fuck in Safeway. There's no Eros in Safeway. Whole Foods has Eros. Uh -huh. If there's an Eros in Whole Foods in America, which is very clear and it's unmistakable. Right. And so so Whole Foods basically makes all the organic people feel like they're way too limited because Whole Foods has managed to break out of the small organic community and actually transform, right, the food culture of America and all the classical, you know, more classical Kroger Publix places have actually shown that you can do mass market and actually not compromise and not sell out. So both on the mass market Kroger kind of public side, supermarket, big chain side, and on the organic side, the eros of Whole Foods actually invalidates both of their sellouts, both of their compromises. And so there's a move to murder eros. And John said, why, why? we've hired like the best publicists in the world and, and, and we can't respond. Well, because you can't respond to the move to murder eros. It's the murder of eros, right? And, and Whole Foods represented, and for a very, very long period of time, the sense of eros, which is why people liked to shop at Whole Foods. I wrote two books. I, I, when I met John, I told him I wrote two books singing Whole Foods, because the Whole Foods near me, I would go there and write because I actually felt good, right, in the, right, in that arena of Eros, because I was in a field of Eros. So when a person- Field of Eros, that's a good right, expression. Right, and, and, and we live, we need to generate a culture of Eros. Yeah. Right, we need to generate a culture of Eros, we need to generate a politics of Eros. So Whole Foods was holding something of that field of Eros. But the you Eros know, gets attacked, uh, you know. Um, and Eros gets attacked because- Definitely, almost always, it seems, or-, or Because we want to cover over our own deadness, yeah. right? And since we don't know how to, how to enliven our deadness and we feel trapped and we feel like we've given up our dreams, we've, we felt we've given up on, on the possibility that our lives once, once meant to us, Right, and that that experience is so deadening and so poisonous, right, and so painful, and we can't hold that pain. And so, what we do is, instead of actually stepping into the circle of eros, we can't find our way into the circle of eros. We place someone else outside the circle, right? That gives us an illusion of being inside the circle, and then we go to murder that person outside the circle. And that dynamic is what Gerard missed, 
right? Right. In other words, what's actually happened? It's not just a random, innocent, arbitrary, innocent person. No, and it's the murder. It's a person of with eros that gets murdered. It's a person, an institution, an idea. But right? not always. I mean, sometimes the pharmacon was a criminal, or he was a, a crippled person, or or right. Know, so that's what I'm saying. So, I, so I, that's why I'm not talking about Gerard. Right? It's the murder of Eros. So it's, I want to distinguish between the murder. Okay, of Eros gotcha. And right. That's right. Gotcha. So the murder of Eros means I identify right a an incarnation of Eros, be it person, place, right, field, right, idea, supermarket, and and I go to murder them because because somehow. Right, you know, the they they get beneath the shutter of appearances, right? And they discomfort my comfortably numb state and they challenge my assumptions. And so I project onto them, they're manipulating me, right? I project on them, right? They're somehow degrading me. And it often happens that if I can just be be just share personally, it often happens that I'll I'll speak to a group of people. And, you know, so 90% of the people like where we're totally and we totally got it, but there'll be 10% of the people who say, wow, we, we loved it. Then afterwards we felt, you know, we felt ill at sorts because we felt that he kind of entered our space and kind of played with our minds, right? And challenged, right? Right. You know, and we didn't feel comfortable in ourselves, right? Well, but actually we're supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? That's actually what thought does, right? In other words, right? Deep thought is supposed to actually overturn, right, right, the, the comfortable neo-certainties, right, of what Pink Floyd called our comfortable numbness. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. And actually, when I step into a field of ideas, I should be in the field of Eros, and I should be aroused in the field of Eros, and that arousal should cause me to be imbalanced for a moment, and imbalanced means I'm willing to step into an uncertainty about all of the deadened propositions, that, that contribute to my deadened life and actually revivify and re-eroticize my life. Because actually every person right, has an obligation to live an erotic life because only from the place of an erotic life can I actually make right and be the unique configuration of Eros, which, which reality desperately needs me to be. So then I have one notion I want to add Please. here is, is sacrifice, Please. right? Because there's, there's a way in which you could either sacrifice somebody else by, you know, attacking them. Or, or you right. could sacrifice your own deadness or, you know, I think the golem inside of you, right? We have right. beautiful, um, beautiful, beautiful. That's right. Am I willing? That's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. Andrew, right. In other words, am I willing to sacrifice? Right. And let me say it a little differently, but the same, right. Am I willing to sacrifice my attachment to the comfortably numb deadened version of myself, right? The winning formula that's allowed me to somehow navigate reality to self-commodify, right? To attract to myself, right? Sufficient, right? Status, right? And, 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 and resources that I can somehow get by life while on the inside, right? The emptiness burns and I cover it over with all manner of pseudo eros. Am I willing to sacrifice that pseudo identity and actually become, right? The, the, the living, burning, right, blazing aliveness, which is my unique configuration of Eros, right, in order to do that, right, the Zen masters are right, I need to die on the cushion, right, but I die on the cushion, not simply to become, right, part of the field of awareness, but I die in the cushion, I'm crucified, I need to be crucified in order to be reborn, right, and to resurrect into the unique configuration, which is my Christ itself, right, and to do that takes something. And, and I want to say, I just want to add, you, 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 in order- What does to, it take? What does it take? Also, so here's in one sense, right? In order to avoid 
murdering Eros in small ways. And sometimes we murder Eros by betraying a friend in conversation with the third friend. And we do it in very subtle ways. Yeah. We murder Eros because, because in order to avoid the murder of Eros, we have to be willing to bear the pain of Eros. Right? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. In other words, in other words, you know, I mean, let's just take, let's just take, you know, the gorgeous Indian art. Well, we usually associate Eros with pleasure. Huh? Well, no, but Eros is the agony and the ecstasy of the whole thing. Yeah. Eros equals, let's go back to our equation. Eros equals the experience of radical aliveness, seeking, moving towards desiring ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness. Right. So that's that's right. right. We actually need to take we need serious equations in the interior sciences. So I'm, I'm let's give an example from the gorgeous Indian, you know, archetypes. Right. Right. Krishna and Radha love each other. OK, but but Radha has to be willing and Krishna has to be willing to bear the pain of Eros. Right. To avoid looking away. Right. Because sometimes it gets so painful that I can no longer surrender right to the field of Eros because it's too painful. And Krishna and Radha have to be able to, right, in the great Indian story, they, they need to be able to, to bear the pain of Eros. And when we're not willing to bear the pain of Eros, in a thousand small ways we murder Eros, either in each other, or if we avoid doing it in each other, we do it, we murder it in ourselves, because we're not willing to feel that much, right? And here, I, I just want to just offer a, with permission, Right, you know, a in this, you know, dialogue, just a simple but beautiful tantric pointing out, right? The way the way we do it, the way you actually are able to not turn away from the pain of Eros is that you have to be willing to feel a feeling through to completion. Right. So when I'm yearning, don't cover over the yearning. Feel you gotta get you gotta be in the holy of holies, right? Of of the temple, right? Where we feel the feeling through to completion. When I feel the feeling through to completion, right, there's a there's a relaxation into the field of she, and then the feeling is going to arouse again, it's going to come up again, but I keep stepping into it, and I keep feeling it through to completion. And that could be any kind of feeling, right? That that could be upset, or just anger, or, you know, any kind be, of... It can be the pain of missing. See, and it's always about the pain of missing, Andrew, right? It's the pain of missing the beauty that I know that's there. It's the pain of missing the depth that I know it's there. It's the pain of, of missing, right, the, the, the experience of being touched, right, emotionally, physically, existentially, right, psychologically, right, spiritually, right? right? We, we desperately want to be touched. But touched, we, we exile touch, right, only to physical touch. We want to be touched on every level. And that's actually what Whitehead means by prehension, right? It's the proto-desire. Mm-hmm. Right to touch. Preemption is the proto desire to touch that is actually inherent to the field of cosmos. So Krishna and Radha can only stay together, right, and actually be be the love of the cosmos, right? If they if they're willing to bear the pain of eros, and to do that, I've got to be willing to sit in it, right, and to not cover it over, right. And and that's that that's the whole story, right. And sometimes we have no choice. Sometimes we have to cover it over. It's just too painful, and that's okay. And it's okay. And so we fill up, we fill it up with, with, with all manner of things. And that's okay. That's beautiful. But in the end, are we willing to go back and sit in the field of emptiness until that emptiness fills up with a presence that's so unbearably sweet, so unbearably beautiful, right? Because it actually is the inner quality, right? Of reality herself, yeah. right? And it's always there and it never fails us. 
and, it, and it's our most faithful beloved, right? It's the place that we can trust because it is the nature of reality. Right? I was thinking when you were talking about Jagdam Trumpa, and he said, when you meditate, you should meditate like you're proposing to somebody. Uh, right, like, right. Like, rather, I think people meditate in a very dead way. They meditate to just sit in, in calm and be calm and sort of still everything down. But, but, uh, right. but there's, there's, there's another, there's another sort of beautiful. level to that, which is really, uh, as as you say, a absolutely. Meditation, sh meditation should be eros. Yes. Right. Meditation should not be relaxation. Right. Meditation yeah, should yeah. be eros. Right. Right. Meditation is. And meditation actually, what meditation actually means is to enter into the field of eros and to be willing not to look away and to let it wash through me. And, and I'm proud of Krishna and Radha, right? Because they're holding it for us, right? right? And they're, they're, they're pouring it into reality. So it's, a, you know, and, and we all need in some way, right, to step into that. And, and, you know, we can sometimes come closer. We can sometimes step back, but we never look away and then we always go deeper, right? And, and that is, it's the most precious thing. And, and so in terms of the murder of Eros, just to come back, right? So we murder Eros in ourselves or in others when we're not actually participating, right? In the field of Eros, when we're not generating in our lives and in the broader collective, right? A culture of Eros, right? When the politics of our organizations and our communities are not a politics of Eros, right? So and it's the murder of Eros is actually the ultimate apex predatory move of pseudo eros and that's always what it is right the murder of eros is always pseudo eros right right and it's always i'm going to and the word actually that the person who wrote about this very beautifully is a man named joseph burke who was a student of rd lang and i want to credit joseph he's a, a beautiful man right and he wrote a book called um the tyranny of malice and then he reissued the book called malice through the looking glass and Joseph must have oh, written, wow. you know, he must have written a hundred scholarly articles, you know, in the formal journals. He's kind of the most important writer in psychoanalysis on malice. And at some point, Joseph and I became, we, we, we had a large conversation about this for several years. We, we, we kind of studied and spent a lot of time together, you know, in person and in communication on this topic, because I realized he was the best person in the world writing on this. He had the, he had, if you will, the arrows on this. And he, he gets this notion and he, he cites, right, you know, in his articles, this notion of what he calls annihilation, right? And as when someone's eros, right, reminds us of our own deadness, we want to not kill them, we want to annihilate them, okay. right? We want to, we want to deplatform them, we want to kill their voice, we okay. want to make sure that 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 they have no that 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 they have no capacity, right, to share their eros in the world. We don't just want to murder them, we want to murder their eros, right? It's the murder of eros. And we do it in the most horrific ways. We do it through all sorts of heinous means that are unimaginable, right? And, and, and that's why we need to actually recognize, right, that, well, i just give you one example. Well, for example, there's ways to properly steal men, cancel culture, right? There's times when we should hold people accountable, meaning after we've checked information, gone through due process, right, evaluated, cross-examined, right? And as if we've, right, and, you know, and, and we're talking about, particular heinous, right, right? But that's not what most of cancel culture is. Lots of cancel culture has actually become the murder of Eros, right? It's, it's become a fig leaf for all sorts of political moves, right? Malice, right, lurks in the corner, right? And, and you know, would Martin Luther King, right, for example, survive our contemporary internet culture? Highly unlikely, 
right? And so what we're doing is we're actually murdering Eros in the collective, right? And when we murder Eros in the collective, we're left with a kind of pallid, you know, desiccated, you know, limp, you know, impotent leadership, right? At a moment when, when actually the center is not holding. And so our capacity to actually stand for Eros, to move beyond, you know, and in the old witch hunts, we in the old, you know, the old world of Salem, whether it was in Europe or in America, we called people witches because religion reigned. Today, psychology reigns, so we call people sociopaths, right? That's that's the newer or narcissists, right? Right. And there's an entire literature, right? There's one book called uh, "The Narcissist Next Door," right? How you figure out whether you're neck right? The people are, are right. And that's so they're, they're, we basically we weaponized psychology, right? In kind of popular forums. Right, just like we weaponized religion and called people witches, we've weaponized psychology. We call people narcissists and sociopaths, which is a way of murdering eros. Right. I mean, I remember just the other day I was talking to someone who shall remain nameless. And they were talking about someone that I'm doing dialogues with. And they said, You shouldn't be doing dialogues with that person because they did this and that. I said, Well, the first off, they may have done this and that. I don't know, but they've actually apologized for it. And you know, in a in a in a major public forum over four or five years. And so you know, they get a second and a third chance, right? And the, so the person said to me, just without batting an eyelash. Well, this person, is mercy, right? Uh, right? This is, this is, so the person said to me without batting an eyelash, they said, but their apologies weren't sincere. So I said to the person, let me ask you a question. And this is a very, very well-known figure who said that. I said, you're sitting wherever you're sitting. You've determined, right? Based on what? How you, that this person's apology is insincere and that therefore this person should be deplatformed Right, and that that all of their gifts should not be allowed. All right, and you're now attacking me for dialing with that person, where I'm actually just accepting that they did their best and they apologized. Right, and and actually they deserve right another chance. Right, and and I said I said in this particular case, by the way, that I'm talking about, I happen to think that this particular person actually did some stuff that was really off. So I think the critique of this person is actually valid, and I think this person is doing the best they can to 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 reconstitute themselves. And so so I'm I'm delighted. Right to dialogue with the person, but here's this person sitting on the sidelines, representing culture, saying, "Oh, person's apologies are insincere." Really, right? Another, yeah. another. You don't get to stand on the sidelines and spectate and murder eros, right? And we actually have to take apologies seriously, right? And we have to give people the possibility to be reborn, and we have to give people the possibility, right, to to retell their story, and and we have to both check what's true. We have to have a culture of fact, but even when things are true. We also need a culture of forgiveness, other than for for the most heinous things, which which are those are very unusual. And instead, we're engaged in the murder of eros, right? Because it's a way to avoid the fact that our own eros has died. We engage in the murder of eros because we've committed suicide, right? And and that's the core of the whole thing. And so so it's a, it's incredibly right important, and we need to actually revivify right in some real and beautiful way our public culture and maybe just add and last thing and then to you andrew and to any questions but i'll just give you you know two simple examples right think of iago and othello right shakespeare right iago sees othello and desdemona and, and iago and othello is an imperfect character because we're all imperfect vessels for the light so he's an in he's, but he's a good character it's complex. He's an imperfect character. We're imperfect vessels for the light. But Iago sees Othello and he just can't breathe because Othello's aliveness and Othello's eros, 
And Othello's nobility makes Iago feel small. And Iago can't find his unique self. He can't find his own Iago-ness. And just like love is a perception, it's not an emotion at its core, it's a perception. It's a perception of the infinite, irreducible gorgeousness of a person's unique configuration of eros. So love is constructive. It, it, it facilitates emergent. Plus is also, if you detect the person's imperfection, you then inflate it, right? Exponentialize it, amplify it. You then dismiss, then you go to annihilate them. That, that's the process of malice, right? But it, it actually stems from, right? inability to actually be in my body in the face of that person's eros, in the face of that person's radiance. And, and a second example would be, let's go to the famous, you know, Amadeus film, where you have Salieri and Mozart, right? right? And Salieri is a composer, right, for the, the emperor of Austria. And he's pretty decent. But Mozart's Mozart, right? And Salieri hears Mozart, and he goes ballistic. Right, his whole system gets jangled and he's in pain and he knows that he can't make that music. Right. So instead of celebrating that music, right, instead of being in devotion to that music, I am, I am, Andrew, I am delighted when I meet someone who has a particular gift that I don't have. I'm madly delighted. Right. Wow. They can play a particular instrument in the symphony better than I can. Right. And and I try and, you know, I try and bring people into the think tank who everyone in the think tank has got one something that they can do better than I can, right? And, you know, whether that's this person's really good at physics and this person's brilliant at education and this person's, right, brilliant at, you know, whatever it is, right? So, mm -hmm. so and, it's, and, and I'm, I'm, I get madly ecstatic, right, to be in the presence of a person who's in their eros, or we fall in love with people when they're in their eros. But, but, but Salieri does the opposite. He, he doesn't know how to fall in love with Mozart. He doesn't know that love is real. So he goes to murder Mozart. Right. And of course, what does he do? He accuses him of sleeping with his, you know, high school students. This is the other thing. I mean, this is a right? whole other That's conversation right? is the sexuality right? bit, because because there's always it seems like in the accusation, there's a sexual thing going on. I haven't quite got my handle uh, my, uh, handle on that, but um, so let's I, 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 I'm even speaking from personal experience here. Right. Well, I got it. When I, I when it. when when we get attacked, it has something to do with 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 it, it, even if it's online and all this stuff, there's a sexual component to it. Um, I, I'm not sure if I quite understand that. Yeah, this, this is this is this is big, and we have to do our own dialogue on it. But but with permission, Andrew, just say one short thing about it, okay? Yeah. Right. So three three short things. One, right. The reason people get attacked on sexuality is because we don't have a sexual narrative, right? Okay. And when a person is in the throes of the sexual, right, their separate self, good citizen, balanced, enlightened self disappears and someone else comes online and we don't have a new sexual narrative. And all of Return to Eros is about articulating a new narrative of desire until we have a new narrative of desire, right? So then sexuality by itself is problematic, right? In other words, in other words even in the issue of sexual harassment, the issue is, should be harassment, as Vicki Schultz, a scholar at Yale, pointed out. The issue began at her, as harassment, but it turned to the sexual, right? Meaning the issue becomes sex was had. Why is that problematic? Right? Because we don't have a sexual narrative, so we have an implicit kind of you know, sex-negative narrative and culture where sex itself is per se problematic, 
right? Mm -hmm. So, so that that's one, and that's critical to understand. Or it's both; so, it's sex positive and sex negative at the same time. So you never really know where you stand. Um, right, right. So both are in culture at the same time. That's absolutely true. Or we have this very narrow sex sacred because you're making babies, but but no one's having sex to have babies, right? Right. But right. so actually, what happens is we don't have a notion of what we call. Right, in cosmorotic humanism, we call it sex erotic, where sex is an expression of the erotic force of cosmos moving through me, right? and it's intrinsically dignified. But that's one. So in other words, sexuality has been problematized essentially. So we live in this culture where sexuality is easily available, but it's denuded of every narrative. So sexuality is an expression of the utter collapse of frameworks. And so therefore it becomes right the, the knife through which we we actually go to murder our opponents. So that's one. Two is we also don't have a, a, a kind of notion of transformation, right? Once something's gone wrong, meaning we have a linear notion of time. So if there's been a sexual mistake and there's no one on this phone, on this phone call who hasn't made some sexual mistake in their life, they would have liked to do it differently. They would have liked to show up differently. And I'm not talking about a heinous mistake. I'm talking about, you know, in the normal arc of human relationships, sexuality gets complex. Right. And we're not willing to hold that complexity. We're not willing to actually forgive each other. Right. We hurt each other as Bono sings and we do it again. So we have to hold each other with great tenderness, with great respect. We've got to hold boundaries. And the nature of sexuality is about right, moving beyond the ordinary boundaries. So there's going to be tentativeness. Right? And we don't allow for that tentativeness anymore. We don't allow. Right. And so there's a lot of goodness in the evolution of boundaries. Right. There's a lot of validity and a lot of sacred anger in Me Too. Right? And, and there's a lot of inappropriate behavior that's taken place that we should have zero tolerance for, but it's gone way beyond that, right? It's gone to this place where sexuality itself is demonized, right? And if someone makes a sexual mistake, right, then we that's actually- the inquisition. We, uh, we hold that against them forever because yeah. sexuality has no narrative, therefore it becomes the ultimate evil. And so that, that's, sexuality is a tool, right? In the murder of Eros, but it's not about sexuality. Right, it's about the murder. So let's hold here. Great, great, great. Oh, let's hold um, here, yeah. I have so many more things to talk yeah, to you we, about. We, but it's, we got it's terrible, but but I really want to bring people into the, the conversation as well. So, um, Krista, I think is 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 can can we can we open this up for for questions? And um, Krista, I think was going to help me handle the questions here, so that I could be deeply involved in the conversation and and not lose uh, my train of thought. So, so do you have a question, Krista? Somebody could either ask the question themselves or they could, or, or it could be read by, by Krista or me. Take it away. Take it yes, away. so if you, I just uh, unspotlighted you, so we're all together on gallery views. If you want to turn on your camera, then we can see each other. That's really nice. And if right. you have a question, right. please just raise your hand or write it in the chat box and I will ask you to unmute yourself and you can, ask the question yourself, or if you write it, I can ask it for you. Awesome. And we could, let, let's take a couple of questions before we wrap. And I, I just I have, appreciate everyone. Right? Everyone was just so beautiful and we did we did a lot. And I know, Andrew, we're just at the beginning, right? We, we <laughs> it always feels that way, yeah. Yeah, we got started. But Krista. I think the best conversations always feel that way, don't they? Yes. There's no, there's no end to them, right? So. Yes, that's beautiful. Yes. Yes. Uh, Niels, I see you raise your hand. Okay, I'm gonna start off cheeky. First off, how what do you what do you think about my hat, Mark? Do you I like love it? The, the hat's awesome, man. The hat's fantastic. Yes, <laughs> on hat. 
super happy to hear that. And okay, I I want to ask about the power where power sort of sits in this framework. And I like, I'm not trying to pin you. I, like, I'm um, no, please, 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 fantastic. Just some context. Just recently yeah. read something from Jung that uh, Wagner and Nietzsche took different turns, sort of in their aloneness. Let's say that Wagner went for for love, and, and Nietzsche went for for power. And uh, and when I when I relate to because uh, I I I'm not intimately familiar with Wagner, but with Nietzsche, like I I can ought, what's the word anthro ontologically tap into the will to power, but that sort of set me astray in different ways also, but. I get the sort of same feeling when I tap into when you speak about the eros, like oh, I get like it's it's very very high energy, but I'm sort of afraid of being let's say uh, corrupted by by power in that. So so that's sort of it. Beautiful. beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, thank you, brother. Right, right. Neil's with the great with the great hat, brother. So I, I think you know power is a quality of eros, right? And we need to have an entire dialogue on power right which is you know unbelievably important but you can't talk about eros without power there's power to eros and power is one of the faces of eros just like intimacy right is a face of eros and what's happened is we have negatively interrogated power in liberal culture right but actually power there's a reason why the great traditions for example always talked about the divine as the infinity of power right right divinity is the infinity of power and Power has three qualities to it, three dimensions to it, if you will. And there's an essay on power in Homo More Essays we're writing, which focuses on this tripartite distinction. So there's power over, there's power for, and there's power of. And that's the way I'd like to distinguish power. But again, neither of them, none of them are negative, right? And that's in kind of certain human potential circles, they'll say, well, power over, that's that's the bad stuff, power for, that's the good stuff, right? Not at all, I know, right? There are light and shadow forms of power over and light and shadow forms of power for. Now, what are they just in a second, right? Power for is power and service, right? Of creativity, power and service of emergence, right? Power and service of value, right? Power of, right, is the evolutionary eros itself. It's the power of the evolutionary impulse itself that animates and drives everything, that causes grass to grow, that, that causes beetles to chirp, right, that is motivating and animating, right, the energy of this conversation, right, that drives, right, all of reality and all of its dimensions in every second. That, that's power of. But then power over, Right means that actually there are hierarchies. There are places where there's where, where one person has more power, the other person has less power. Right, and in those moments, right, that power over can either be benevolent, beautiful, right, holy, right, or it can be used inappropriately, right, and abusively. Right, that's always true. But of course, power for can be used abusively as well. Right, power for means the communist state, which is the great mother, right, embraces me in its womb for the betterment of society, right, and has power over and develops a totalitarian society in order to fulfill, right, the role of the great mother in society, right? That's a shadow of power for, 
right? It's not just power over, that's a power for. So, right, powers is multitudinous and multifaceted. Now, the last thing that's worth saying in terms of sexuality is that in sexuality, power works in all sorts of ways, right? So the notion that in sexuality, power is a clear cut notion is of course not true, right? Now, there's certain kinds of power over that are obvious, right? In which, right, there's a kind of power, of, for example, right? A boss, right, says to his secretary, right, I will fire you if you're not sexual with me. Well, that's problematic. That's called, that's legal sexual harassment, right? Right, and it's inappropriate and it should be illegal, right? That's an inappropriate form, right, of power over, right? However, that's usually not the case. Or for example, a teacher, a professor says to their student, I'll only give you a good grade or I'll only pass you on your doctorate. So that's quid, that's called quid pro quo sexual harassment, right? That's an, a, a violation of power and one of the great evolutionary advances, right? Of the postmodern period has been to legislate and to prescribe sexual harassment, that's a great momentous advance of the goddess. That's a momentous advance for Eros. And we all need to stand for that. And I stand for that 1 billion percent in every way, for sure. Step two, but it's also possible that within a university, you will have what the great feminist bell hooks called amorous relationships, or what she called in an essay that bell hooks, the great feminist called passionate pedagogy. Right? It's also possible that you'll have a professor who's, I don't know, you know, you know, age X, and you'll have a student who's, you know, 25, and a professor, I'm just making this up, who's who's 40, right? And right, they have a relationship. And Bell Hooks and you know, Christina Hoff Summers, right? And you know, I mean, Laura Kipnis, right? And the list goes on and on, right? Have all taken very strong group of power feminists have taken a stand and said that actually in that kind of situation, there's power with the student and power with the professor, right? The student, for example, has power because if they make a false complaint of sexual harassment, right? They can destroy the teacher's life, right? Forever. That's a lot of power, right? The, the teacher doesn't have that power, right? In this contemporary culture, for the teacher to do anything retaliatory to the student, that would also cause them to lose their job. So the teacher has the kind of power of maybe age, maybe knowledge, maybe the charism of teaching, right? So the teacher has some power. The student has power, right? And, and, and the student has multiple forms of power, and the teacher has multiple forms of power. So until 10 years ago, right, on campuses around the world, right, there were amorous relationships between, right, adult teachers with adult students. Now, should that be true or not be true? That's an interesting question, but it certainly doesn't seem to be an egregious violation, Right? There's certainly major figures in the feminist movement, right, who have stood for that possibility, right? Now, to say that that's impossible, that any relationship of that kind is predatory, for example, right? And as a book, for example, called The Lecherous Professor, right, made that claim. So there's an entire literature that makes that claim is obviously absurd, right? Because it actually strips the teacher of the complexity of their vulnerability and, vulnerability and power and strips the student of the complexity of their vulnerability and power. There's a very good book by Jane Gallup called, who's a feminist professor, right? Who had relationships with her students and the book's called Feminist Professor Accused of Sexual Harassment, right? That's a complex issue, right? And so the point is, 
classical sexual harassment quid pro quo, a violation of power. Absolutely, power abuse, thousand percent, because there's there's an imbalance in power because it's quid pro quo, right? Classical amorous relationships between adults, teachers, and students, much more complex, right? Power is distributed and multitudinous, right? Nuanced, right? And multifaceted vectors. And don't we believe that adults actually have the capacity right, to make those decisions? And do we want society to step in and be the mother and to actually enact a kind of sexual fascism? Well, that's a good question, right? So that's where it gets much more complex. So I'm just, I'm just sharing this just by way of just, you know, Niels, we can't exhaust the question, just, just sharing that power is complicated, right? And there's a purity to power, right? Which is beautiful and gorgeous and stunning and filled with eros. And, and true power is naturally ethical. The abuse of power violates ethics. When actually you feel true power moving through you, which is a quality of eros, right? The desire to serve, the desire to embrace, right? The desire to transform, right? Fills you, you know, and the prophet was filled with power, right? And, and the texts say in the interior sciences that the prophet who couldn't experience the death of their power, right? Couldn't speak truth to the king, couldn't speak truth to the, the corrupt, what was often the corrupt power of the king. And so we need to hold power and interrogate power, right? In, in a much more subtle and nuanced way, standing fully against abuses of power, but also standing fully against, right? The the, the subtle hijackings of power in the name, right, of defending an ostensible victim, right? That's just as common. It's very, very often true. It's called, in, in, it's called the victim triangle in philosophy, right? Cartman's triangle, where, where very, very often you've got a victim, you've got a rescuer, right? And you've got a, a predator. And it looks like the victim's the victim, the rescuer is rescuing from the predator. But as Cartman points out, it's often not the case. Often the person who seems to be the rescuer is actually the predator, right? The person who seems to be the victim, right, might be a predator, right? Actually, you've got to look very carefully about where power is distributed, what the effects of power are, what kind of power is being used, what kind of power is being deployed. All of those distinctions have gotten lost. So I hope that's at least the beginning of reclaiming Eros, as you say so beautifully, is about reclaiming power. And, and people should be power hungry. People should be power hungry, but not for pseudo-egoic power, not for pseudo-eros, but for the power that's the function, the natural function of unique self, because that's what unique self is. Unique self means a unique conduit or a unique currency of power, right? And, and the hat's gotten better and better every minute. Okay. Yes. I like the connection between prophecy and power. That would be an yeah. interesting way thing to explore. Um, do, you, do you have a follow-up or, or do we have another question? And I have to you know, I have a hard stop, right, for a teaching in nine minutes. Nine minutes, so let's, okay. Let's go okay. seven more minutes. So I'll be two minutes in between, if that's okay. If there's any other questions, we'd be, be delighted to, to entertain them, right? If we're up or, or however, however or wherever we are. In the chat box is one. Chat box is a question. Thank Says you, The question is by... Eagle, I hope I say the name correctly. Going back to the start of the session, did we get an equation or a definition of Eros? Eagle, yes, 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 fantastic. So let's actually, let's go up in the chat. So Eros equals, let's get a definite, an equation. This, and it's a formal equation. And what we could spend an entire 10 sessions on this equation, but the formal equation is 
which, 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 you know, and anyone has any adjustments or up leveling completely welcome. It took me about 20 years to formulate it. Um, but I'm, I'm all for up leveling, but it's, it's, it's very, it's very simple. Eros equals, right. The experience of radical aliveness moving towards seeking, desiring ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness. And, and really, you know, when we do the equation formally, we don't need to write it that way. This, that we, we use actually time signs. So it says Eros equals the experience of radical aliveness, right? Times moving towards desiring, seeking, times ever deeper contact, right? Right, you know, times ever greater wholeness, right? In other words, one amplifies the other. And that quality of Eros, that definition of Eros applies all the way up and all the way down. That, that's what's so critical about in cosmorotic humanism, meaning it applies to economics, it applies to education, it applies to relationship, right? It applies right, in every field, in every domain, and, and actually begins to tell me that we live in a telerotic cosmos, a cosmos that's animated by telos and, and by eros, right? And it's a cosmoerotic universe, right? And but, but that cosmorotic universe doesn't efface the human being. Humanity is very much at the center, right? The Anthropocene. Right, we're responsible, right, erotic stewards, right, of the whole thing, right, cosmoerotic humanism. So thank you. I'm I'm actually delighted, right, to come back, right, to that equation, right, and and perhaps if if there's another question, be be madly delighted to address it. And if we have like a little a little pause at the end, right, and and just to thank everyone and to thank you, Andrew, right, for 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 facilitating and creating the space. Maybe we could just um. We could just, um, you know, I think I, I heard earlier when I was on a little break, right? Andrew said, if we, if we could have, like, maybe we could just chant for a second. We could just end, you know, in the Eros of chant just for a, a short second, if that's okay with everyone. Okay. I know that wasn't in the, in the chant. You, you mean you have a chant uh, that you would yeah, like to just, share? We, we often, we often end a, you know, we often end in our community, we often end a conversation with chant just to kind of, right, hold in in the larger field. Is that okay, Andrew? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'll translate some words from, from a Hebrew chant. <coughs> For you are the master of liberation, and you are the master of consolation. For you are the master of liberation, and you are, Andrew, the master of consolation. For you are the master of liberation, and you are the master of consolation. Hey, 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 hey,